I'm Brandon Katz. And I'm Jean Bentley. And this is Must Watch Netflix Edition, a conversation between two pop culture junkies to help you navigate the endless library of Netflix. Today, we are discussing Aaron Sorkin's Oscars hopeful, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and Anya Taylor-Joy's new miniseries, The Queen's Gambit. Trial of the Chicago 7 uh, was very Aaron Sorkin. I feel like <laughs> you gotta know what you're getting into when you watch a movie by Aaron Sorkin. And it was extremely Aaron Sorkin in a, a way that I really, really enjoyed. But I will say it kind of felt more like a bunch of parts rather than the sum becoming more than that, if that makes sense at all. Basically, I really admired so many aspects of it. But as a movie, as like two hours, it wasn't necessarily like the cinematic experience that I crave. Yeah, so the trial of Chicago 7, it's 1969. Seven people were charged by the federal government with uh, conspiracy and more arising from the protest, the anti-Vietnam War protest at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. That in and of itself is a very very compelling, deeply rooted story that I don't think necessarily needed some of the typical Sorkin flourishes because I ultimately agree with you. I I liked it. This is a good movie. But I feel like as a story, it's very segmented. And Aaron Sorkin, in just his second feature uh, in terms of director, his skills behind the camera still lacks and, and... can't keep pace with that rhythmic, melodic dialogue that he's become so famous for. Totally. If it were The Trial of the Chicago 7, written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Tommy Shalami, like, then it would have been <laughs> exactly it. But but you're right. I It's a really current subject matter, you know, relating the Vietnam War protests of 1968 you know, of the late 60s and in general to our kind of current moment where we're also undergoing a very a big political change in our I country. I noticed. You <laughs> <laughs> what? You mean America is not completely fine? All candy and mushrooms? Uh, I think we're okay. Yeah, Brandon's been inside too long. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> but yeah, no, no, no. It's, and it's a lot of the same issues. It's it's young people. It's... um you know, oppressed people, it's it's people speaking out. And that is certainly what is happening today. One thing that I really loved about it is that I had learned, obviously, about this in U.S. history class, but I did not know that much about the outcome, right? When, when, mm-hmm. when I was taught this in, in U.S. history, it was broad strokes. There was a protest. These five people were charged. Well, and so I didn't really know a lot about the specifics of the case and 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 of the actual trial and and all of the intricacies. So that was really, really, really fascinating to kind of see and also to kind of be on Wikipedia as I was watching and be like, okay, what is what is the real thing? What is not? <laughs> yeah, in terms of like courtroom drama. This is Sorkin returning to A Few Good Men. This is Sorkin doing a little David E. Kelly legal drama. And I like that because, like we talked about at the top, this is kind of an old school throwback movie. Uh, It's not necessarily the type of film that, that gets a huge wide release these days. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But yes, the the intricacies with Frank Langella, who plays this kind of very bigoted 
corrupt judge to, to a certain degree. The surrounding political commentary that this trial essentially became a microcosm for, this was a very pivotal moment in American history. And I actually was not taught about this in high school. So it was very much an introduction to something really important that's happened that, like you said, has connections to to today. And I think the subject matter debate is important because as we talked about before we actually got on and started recording, we were wondering, is it more powerful coming out in 2020 versus five years ago, 10 years ago? When do you think it has this maximum impact? Because clearly right now we are at a divisive crossroads in American history. Yeah, and it's interesting because it definitely has been in the works for a long time. I do know that. Um, I know that Sasha Baron Cohen was attached to the project for many, many years. And he's ended up playing this character who was 30 years old as this was (laughs) happening. And love you, Sasha Baron Cohen. You are not 30 years old. But honestly, that was fine. It was more, that was more distraction for, you know, if you're a person who's like obsessively checking, wait, Mm -hmm. was that part real? Was that part real? You're kind of just like, oh, you know. Um, kind of comparing the two, but I, you know, as an as a narrative feature, that it wasn't an issue that Sasha Baron Cohen is older than his character right. was supposed to be. Like, that's not an issue, but um, it definitely was like wow. But especially since they cast a lot of the other actors um, a lot closer to the ages of their real life counterparts, it was just a really funny like, oh yes, the thirty year old Sasha Baron Cohen. I think there was a couple others too. A lot of them are close in age, but there was a couple other where uh, I believe Michael Keaton's character was about twenty years younger than Michael Keaton the actor. And I'm like, okay, you know, but if there's ever an opportunity to get Michael Keaton to come pinch hit for two scenes, you take it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and then also. Um, you know, this is the first real awards hopeful for whatever awards season is going to look like this year. And to me, Michael Keaton is this kind of lawyer who comes in, um, you know, later in the film with this cameo was like prime supporting actor nomination. And I feel like he probably has the best chance of anyone in this film to get a nomination, in my personal opinion, because it is so ensemble-based. Um, I don't know that any one performance other than that really sticks out at me. Um, uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen um, from Watchmen was fantastic in it. Um, I would say he would probably be a a contender as well. He plays um, Bobby Seale, who was a Black Panther leader who ultimately, he was treated prejudicially by the judge played by Frank Langella, and ultimately his case was separated from the seven other men. But for quite a while in the courtroom, his voice is not being heard. Um, I thought he was really really fantastic. Like you have a good cast. It's just, you know, can you really pinpoint a single, a single performance? I'm glad you brought up Bobby Seale because this was something that I, as a, as a white critic have never really considered. And I'm so glad that my eyes were open to it. In his review for the ringer, Adam Naiman wrote, 
after placing his tragic, defiant African-American character on display so that we can shake our heads at his treatment, the director is free to return to the serio-comic bickering between movie stars that is his specialty. While The Trial of Chicago 7 may not be an all-time offender in the field of movies that mobilize black suffering to trouble the consciences of white characters, it edges close to that te territory. That is a consideration that never entered my mind, and, and I'm so happy that, that I read that because in looking back on the film, it is that black experience is used to either further the morality of the white characters, such as Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Richard Schultz, or essentially uh, make us feel better for feeling bad at the show that the circus that is being put on in this courtroom. And I don't feel as if Bobby Seale and by extension, the Black Panther narrative really gets its own pillar to stand on in this movie. It's more of a prop for the rest of the story. And I just thought that was really insightful observation and a, a criti criticism that I need to keep in mind moving forward in all sorts of entertainment. Yeah, I'm glad that that is something that you 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 noticed and you took from it. Another thing that I thought was really nice was um, they talked about the murder of Fred Hampton, who was a Chicago Black Panther leader who was murdered by police. Um, it has been proven. You can read about it. And he is just not a figure that is taught about in a lot of, of mainly white um, you know, school districts around the country. And so um, I did like that they touched upon his, his essentially, as they say in the movie, it was a state-sanctioned execution of him. You know, ultimately the movie is about the trial of the Chicago 7 and not that, um, but I did appreciate that that was an event they included and that hopefully um, some people will want to learn more about that. And I also realized that like, I'm, we're assuming that you know you have a basic knowledge of of the of the movie, but it's it's about the protests that occurred outside of the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968, and the men that were arrested and charged with inciting riots and and kind of this farce of a trial that ensued afterwards is essentially what what the it movie really about. was a farce and. To get back to the Oscars point, I think I actually have to go the opposite way. I think the two best chances are Frank Langella as just the, the worst judge in the history of the legal system. And I think Mark Rylance as the kind of good-natured, softer-spoken lawyer who grows increasingly frustrated with a broken, corrupt system. Uh, I think those two have a shot at best supporting. And I think, of course, because it's Sorkin, the movie as a whole has a shot at best screenplay. But this all things considered, it was probably not the Oscars heavy we thought it might be going in. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. I, I mean, it. The, that's why I kind of thought that, you know, it was a lot of parts that I admired, but the some of them didn't necessarily add up to what I wanted them to be. There are a lot of great actors. That to Sorkin's inexperience as a director. Yes, exactly. There's a lot of great actors. There's a lot of great speeches. Uh, Sorkin, hello. <laughs> I really liked the way that he worked in some actual historical footage with yes. the recreated scenes that they filmed. You know, so many great things, a lot of great period costumes, a lot of hair, <laughs> a lot of beards. The hair in the late 60s on the cusp of the 70s is on point in this movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably 25% of the total budget, maybe? 
Yeah, yeah, totally. But I, but I'm not. I ultimately, I really liked it. I liked watching it, but I don't see this as a movie that I will revisit in the future. And if I have to build off what you're saying right there, I, I think we're kind of on the same page because I really loved at the onset of the film how they're essentially presenting varying philosophies on the anti-war campaign, right? You know, each segment has a different approach to the same issue. And I thought that was really, really interesting. But as the movie goes along, I think he focuses, Sorkin focuses on the philosophies more so than the characters. So, you know, when there's a recess in the courtroom and the defendants go back to that little room to discuss, they're talking about these grand approaches to how they want this country to, to view them and how they want this immediate future of America to go. Whereas at that moment, I'm actually interested, no, what do they feel about the case and the fact that they are all facing serious prison sentences? And what do they think about their families that they might be leaving behind? I was actually interested in maybe the micro, whereas I totally understand why Sorkin's going for the macro. Maybe the balance could have been a little bit more even. Yeah, absolutely. And there's another really important thing I wanted to talk to you about this. Are you ready? Eugene. The accents. Like, you said like, Sasha Baron Cohen before. I love him too, but that ooh. was not a Massachusetts accent. Oh, yikes. Listen, Sasha Baron Cohen, again, really love him. He does funny accents, but this was a, a real big question mark of an accent. Uh, <laughs> Abby Hoffman is supposed to be from Boston. Um, a real Dunkin' this, Donuts and coffee kind of guy. Yeah, I mean, this this accent can certainly go in the Hall of Fame of, of the worst. I think it's admirable that he tried it, but the Boston accent is not an easy accent, and I personally don't think you should try it <laughs> if you can't do it perfectly. Yeah, he, he, was the, he fell prey to the classic British actor trying to nail the Boston accent, you know, pitfall. Sorry, mate. Didn't work. <laughs> I also wanted to talk about Jeremy Strong's like little hippie accent that he does was, I'm sure, probably very real to life. Jeremy Strong is a very serious actor, but he it was also like... Capital C choices. As an yeah, actor. I mean, listen, like that has, that has just been played out as a punchline, the kind of like far out, well, hippie kind of thing. And I was like, okay, interesting choice. And then finally... Let's get to Eddie Redmayne, who played kind of the the central protagonist, Tom Hayden, who, of course, um, went on to become a senator, married Jane Fonda. Life turned out okay for this guy. I did not know he married Jane Fonda. That is a phenomenal fun fact. I know, right? And I will say that Eddie Redmayne's American accent was fantastic. It was just upsetting to see it come from his body is my experience i have to go again the other way and just say i thought it was terrible i thought it was really really noticeable how much he was trying to contain his british accent i mean maybe that's part of it when i wasn't looking at him like if i was like looking at my phone or something not that i was on my phone much during this but like it was way better than when I was watching him and just being like, you're Eddie Redmayne and you simply do not sound like that. <laughs> we are facing five years in prison. Uh, that's, that's kind of the vibe I was getting, like a very strained vocal concentration. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I, you know what? It's like that this is a perfect example of 
you know, for whatever reason, that didn't bother me. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen, no. I love that film is subjective. So to, to tie a bow on this whole trial of Chicago 7 conversation, in a year uh, bereft of movies, <laughs> we can easily say, I think I looked more favorably on Trial of Chicago 7 than I might have had I seen this at a, at a critic screening among the 70 other new movies I saw uh, per year. Uh, I think context is important in every film. You can't necessarily detach yourself completely from the context, so it's impossible to be 100% objective. So in this case, yeah, I think I did really enjoy this movie overall, despite our nitpicks, but I also think it benefited from a very light year in movies. I'm wondering where you stand as a fellow critic. There were so many elements about this that I found really great and admirable, but as a whole, I don't think it's a, a great movie that will go in the pantheon of great movies, simply Agreed. put. And, you it's know... a movie that we hoped would be great. Exactly. It wasn't great. That's okay. It was... It provided what I wanted, which was, you know, a, a fun... Well, fun is a strong word for this library, <laughs> but but it was just it was an entertaining look at a historical event that I don't know much about without being too dour. And you know, it had a lot of Sorkin witticisms in it. It was it was occasionally funny. yeah funny and and occasionally really infuriating and sad. Not not from the writing from the from the subject matter that they're tackling. But yeah, ultimately, I don't really think this is the Oscar contender that it yeah. wanted to be, but it might have better chances this year, for sure. Worth watching for all you Netflix subscribers at home who are starved for fresh content. Not necessarily the most memorable cinematic event of the last five years. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Sticking with this mid-century Americana setting is a perfect segue into the next topic, The Queen's Gambit, which is Anya Taylor-Joy's Netflix miniseries, essentially follows a chess prodigy in the 1950s and 60s whose rise through the global chess ranks mirrors her own personal development from uh, orphaned nine-year-old to, you know, young woman. Really solid show, I think, uh, because it's not too long. It's an easy barrier of access. And I think Anya Taylor-Joy, much like her character, is a name on the rise in this industry. And if you want to see a good actress who's really coming up in the ranks of Hollywood, turn in a good performance, look no further than The Queen's Gambit. Yeah. I had really strong feelings about this show that I could not have anticipated. I loved it. I loved it. I thought she was fantastic. I first saw her in um, the M. Night Shyamalan movie Split. Isn't that what it's called? Yep. She was great in that. And then I kind of didn't really see her in anything until last year when I saw the latest um, Emma remake that she starred in. And she was fantastic in that. And she was truly just as fantastic in this. She um, plays a uh, orphan in Kentucky in the 1950s who learns how to play chess from this like grizzled janitor at the orphanage and it I turns out bill camp who is one of the all-time yes. guy character actors i wanted him to have more screen time in oh there. my god same he was fantastic and and you know push comes to shove turns out she is a chess prodigy and you know it, it kind of goes from there she gets adopted by a 
couple who are kind of on the rocks and she bonds with her her new adoptive mother and they start entering her into chess competitions and she does really well (laughs) she kind of becomes this this on the rise champion i did not realize until about halfway through watching my screeners the adoptive mother is played by Marielle Heller, who is the director of Can You uh, Ever Forgive Me and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, who's not necessarily known as an actress. I, I thought she was surprisingly pretty great. Oh my God. I did not know that until like a couple of hours ago when I was preparing for this for this segment. She was so good. She yeah. was so good. She plays the the adoptive mother of this teenage girl who kind of realizes the the skill that she has and she especially recognizes it because she has her own skills she's a really gifted piano player but it was something that you know young ladies didn't do and so it was this kind of passion that she had that she wasn't able to pursue so I think that helps her really relate to this new you know person in her life and I thought that she was wonderful and the chemistry that she and Anya Taylor Joy had together. Oh, what a what a gift. It was great. Yeah, that's, that's the backbone of the early part of the series, in my opinion. Now, I, I did not love it as much as you. I, I like it. I think it's <laughs> worth watching. But I felt even at seven episodes, which is not a huge commitment, there was a bit of a straining to fill out each and every moment with, you know, quality story. I do think it gets a bit repetitive. Uh, for those listening at home, the crux of the show is that the character, Beth Harmon, the chess prodigy, is also uh, an addict and an alcoholic. So she has to kind of balance that with the rising pressures of, of her chess career. Now, the the kick is that the way she's able to excel in chess is that she uses these tranquilizers, which were introduced to her at the orphanage by the doctors, which is a whole conversation for a, uh, another pod. Yeah. But uh, th- those allow her to essentially manifest this ghostly chessboard on the ceiling at night as she, as she lays in bed. And it's a really, really beautiful visual motif that runs through the entire uh, series. I really like it because it shows how much of a genius she is. And it really gets at the heart of The Queen's Gambit, which is this kind of line straddling between genius and madness and what does it take to be a prodigy and is it worth it to be an exceptional individual in any field when the cost is is essentially your sanity and i think chess as a whole is kind of this very static game but uh, cinematographer steven meisler does a great job of livening it up and, and making something that could be relatively boring to disinterested onlookers, actually quite kinetic and and exciting. Yeah. And I also definitely would credit some of that to um, the writing by, by Scott Frank, who kind of created, he wrote and directed every episode and the directing as well. But it's almost like this period piece about this girl and it's also a sports movie it's like the sequences where they are playing chess I never in my life that I would be as on the edge of my seat like literally sitting with bated breath waiting to find out what happens in in these chess matches yeah it it was very exciting to watch I I think that it really brought the energy of of a sports 
drama kind of into into the show and I really really loved that aspect of it I also am a sucker for like a good sports story I just love a like feel good underdog (laughs) takes it kind of thing and and like a good sports story and really focusing in on someone who is unbelievable you know not just above average a true prodigy Beth is so detached from the world and so has her guard up based on her upbringing and her experience with her, her birth parents. And I love that kind of through this show, is regardless of our inner fortitude, detachment and loneliness will only hold us back from our true potential. And, and she slowly through trial and error realizes that it's the people in our lives that kind of anchor us to the real world, cutting through the obsessions and, and minimizing the madness that we all have within ourselves, especially her, both for uh, addiction and alcoholism and for her true genius that threatens to consume her whole life. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, not to underestimate the 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 added layer on top of this, and this is where my my main criticism lies, is that I love Scott Frank as a writer, as a as a creator you know, he wrote Logan, which is like, you know, one of the best superhero movies. First superhero movie to get a uh, a screenplay nomination at the Oscars. Exactly. And he's also behind the recent Netflix miniseries, Godless, you know, about, it was a Western about a town populated by only women. And I love that this story is, is centered on this young woman. Um, and one of the, one of the things that she has to fight against is this inherent sexism, not only in society at large and, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, but also especially in the chess community, which is yeah. very, very male dominant. And the thing that I felt watching it was just that if there was, any form of insight provided by a woman at any point, I think it just could have gone a little bit deeper. And I'm sure (laughs) that this man has talked to women in his life. I'm not saying there weren't women involved in, in the creation of this, but there definitely is a level of authenticity that you notice as a woman watching a story written and directed by a man based on a novel by a man that that ultimately you can tell you can you can tell <laughs> but specifically because i am a man so i'm actually interested in getting a perspective that i can't inherently bring to this conversation you know what i i but but here's the thing it's like i don't know that i can articulate how anything could have been done different but i will say that the the layers of the lived experience of women are everywhere right and so this show definitely tackles sexism head-on in 1950s society and in the chess world but it's also if you're watching it as a woman you're like well yeah uh (laughs) uh-huh you know like (laughs) duh that's kind of how it goes you know there's not really any any major revelations there as as far as that aspect goes and I think that's a fair criticism, but ironic because one of Beth Harmon's, the character's motivating factors throughout the whole show is that she wants to be seen as extraordinary for her ability and not for her gender. Because everyone keeps saying like, wow, impressive for a woman in chess to be this good. And she is so miffed by that at every point, as she well should be, that 
for perhaps Scott Frank, not to, not to say this was ever intentional, but for ha- perhaps him to miss certain nuances that could only come from the female perspective is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is not like a complaint that I have that is solely specific to Scott Frank. I love him. I think he's done wonderful feminist work, but um, like with this, with Godless, with other things, but it's just like there is something that you can tell. And I'll give you an example of like the movie Bad Moms. Have you seen that movie? Right. It's a movie starring these women and it's about women talking to each other very frankly. And I loved it. I thought it was very funny, but it was also very obviously written by men. Right. (laughs) And there is just, you can just tell. (laughs) You just can tell. I just think, you know, people at home might be like, oh, these hosts are are so PC woke. Like it's not woke. It's just organic naturalism. It's something that, you know, as a Jewish person myself, if we're going to write a, a Holocaust movie, well, I would like a Jewish person to be involved with the creation of that movie because they can offer an insight culturally and, you know, physically and from a family generational perspective that uh, a, a people of a different religion who weren't persecuted in the same way might not be able to. And it's the same exact thing for a female-fronted story. I hate yeah, people- exactly. And, and, and even... Um, Beth's best friend at the orphanage is this um, girl named Jolene and she is such a captivating character um, largely in part to um, Moses Ingram who is the woman who plays her and she's fantastic. Uh, Some of the dialogue I'm like oh without getting into spoilers her character is really only used to push Beth in certain directions which I thought was a little bit disingenuous and I agree that she gives a fantastic performance and I would have liked to seen her in in more of the episodes yeah but also this this series um one of its strong points is that I think it is full of really interesting characters all of Beth's chess opponents kind of their opponents, but also she needs allies in this world and they also soon become allies. They become lovers. They they like her and, you know, she's a very captivating figure and you can tell why they like her. And I thought that those kind of characters were filled out by some really great people as well. Because this is a chess story, which is not inherently the sexiest concept ever, I don't necessarily think this is like a launching pad for Anya Taylor-Joy into the stratosphere. And that's, you know, against nobody involved in this production because it's a good show. But I do think this is still such a good performance that, I mean, she just got cast as the young Furiosa in the Mad Max Fury Road prequel. This is a, a, a girl who is clearly on the rise in Hollywood, big time. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I think that this show has the investment from Netflix for for someone that they believe is a star. I mean, for Scott Frank, um, giving him the the money and the time to make something like this, I think is really wonderful. And he did a fantastic job with it. And then also to kind of have this this star because she, you know, in the earlier episodes, she has played, the character is played by a younger actress. But as soon as she gets on your screen, you're just mesmerized. She has these beautiful, expressive eyes and you're just kind of captivated by her. And you can tell that everyone is captivated by her too. The camera movements, the, the, you know, the, the hair and makeup and costuming, it just like, she wears it very well. It's, it's, you know, it's all just like, the makings of of definitely a 
it's it's not necessarily a star vehicle if she's not quite a superstar yet, but it certainly is a vehicle for her to sh- astound us all with how good she actually is. I agree. And and because her star is on the rise and because The Queen's Gambit is a mini series, in television, traditionally speaking, limited series are one and done. Mini series are one and done with the option for potentially more. So as a mini series, The Queen's Gambit certainly has the option to continue, but given how busy her schedule is, I don't necessarily know if that's going to happen. I, I think it's probably a good bet that this will be just these seven episodes and that, and that's it. I have found in talking to people not involved in the film and TV industry, which is super refreshing and we need people like us who are in it need to do it more often. I have found that a lot of older viewers are big fans of the limited and or mini series. Whereas younger viewers love knowing like, Hey, this is like multiple seasons, like, oh, great, I'll have something to binge for the next few weeks or, or months. What do you think about that delineation between in, in tastes and how a show is constructed? Yeah, it's really interesting because if you have grown up with the ability to binge watch, which was not really a term that existed before 10, 15 years ago, you know, you're, the way that you consume media is totally different. I will say that personally, I am extremely anti-continuing limited and miniseries. <laughs> it is okay for things to end, people. It's okay. You know, and I think that this is a very lovely closed-ended story. And it covers the story of the novel on which it is based. And let us metaphorically and literally close that book and you know do other things you know i i understand why people would want things that continue on but there's also something to be said about you know when you read a book you read it and then you're done and the story's over and you can kind of revisit it if you think about it or you know sometimes when you know there's book series yes I understand the concept of it but like things can end and it's okay (laughs) yeah for something like the queen's gambit in which my biggest criticism is that it didn't have enough story to properly fill out seven episodes i'm totally okay with this being a one and done uh like you said it's okay to end and finality actually offers a great narrative storytelling opportunity to really pack a punch like something like netflix's own unbelievable i thought was such a great self-contained story something like bodyguard which i know they're thinking about potentially returning to. I think it was a really, really thrilling self-contained story. Now, having said that, I also love when I did, like, so I'm watching Battlestar Galactica for the first time ever right now. And I'm like, oh, four seasons. This is some juicy goodness. I have like my next few weeks planned out in terms of Brandon's enjoyment watches, not for work, not taking notes. So I do like that. But yeah, for the Queen's Gambit like this, I say end it on a good note. This was a real solid season of television. What more can you wring out of this? Yeah, exactly. And it's like, if you look at a lot of um, miniseries or limited series that have been turned into longer things, um, also look at the critical reception to these subsequent seasons, not to pick on a different entity, but I'm thinking specifically of HBO. Think about how much everybody loved True Detective season one and then think about True Detective season two, <laughs> right? And then think about how amazing Big Little Lies was. And then think about how, uh, all right, like season two was. 
it's not that you ruined Meryl Streep because that's impossible, but you certainly didn't take advantage of having Meryl Streep in season two. A phenomenal performance, but yeah. not talking about choices. Yeah. Capital C. Woo. Oh yeah. <laughs> Meryl, Meryl's clearly having a ball in season yes. two. Little lies, but yeah. But 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 basically, yeah. We don't we don't need it. Um, and and there are so many great stories to be told. If you really love those people, turn it into an anthology and tell a different story with the same actors. <laughs> I, I think, and not to go too off topic, that if you brought in a different high profile creator for every season of Watchmen and they could do literally whatever they want with a big budget, that could be one of the most phenomenal, you know, ongoing TV shows around. Yeah, but also it is perfect the way it is, you know? You know, it's not necessarily something that Netflix has dealt with as much because I think that Netflix's strategy is like, we'll do a little bit of everything for everybody. <laughs> so it's they're not as pressed to be like, oh, this did really well. So maybe we should continue it because they have like 75 other things waiting in the wings. Yeah. And I think that's maybe why we haven't seen that quite as much happening with Netflix as it has with other premium television you know providers we'll have to see what happens in the future it's going to be interesting for netflix as they face a, a crossroads of their own exactly well and we will talk about that more next week i think yes because that is it for us today new episodes of must watch netflix edition post every thursday on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts until next week you guys until next week bye